Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 17 through 22. That's kind of where we left off last time we were together last week. We're going to finish up. There are a couple more things in here that I really want to pull out before we get into chapter 3. And uh, so we're in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, And he, meaning Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, look at verse 17. Some of you may not have ever really noticed this, and I didn't until I really started to dive into this. Verse 17 is a quote from the Old Testament. And now, a lot of times when we see in, in books of the Bible, whenever they quote from the Old Testament, it, they tend to kind of isolate it a little bit, and you can tell, oh, this is a quote. But verse 17, you really can't tell is a quote from the Old Testament, but it is. So put a bookmark here and go back with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 19. In this prophetic part here of Isaiah, it says, creating the fruit, verse 19 of chapter 57, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And now, again, we don't have time to really look into the depth of all that was going on in chapter 57, but look closely at what God said long ago. Peace to who? Those who are far and those who are near. Now, if you remember from last week, there was this mindset of the Jews that they were the near ones, and that was because God loved them more than the rest of the world, the Gentiles, the pagans, as they called them, or barbarians sometimes, they use those terms. As we said last week, all along, it was God's plan that the whole world would know who He was and of His glory, and that He loved them all. And that was what the Bible talked about all along. And here in Isaiah 57, verse 19, you see that the prophecy said that he was going to preach peace to those who were far and to those who were near. And that's why back here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, listen to it again, what he says in verse 17. It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And so as we go into what we're going to do, we're going to do some real deep, study of God's plan for the ages tonight. We touched on it last week a little bit, and if you weren't able to be here, that's okay. Go to the website and click on Bible studies. Go to the book of Ephesians and take a look at last week's study, and you can either download it or stream it or whatever you want, and uh, it'll hopefully help you catch up. But we need to wrestle with this because there is a mindset in Christendom, and there's, there's been this schism uh, in Christendom when it comes to the nation of Israel and God's purposes and God's plans and there are those who think that the church has replaced Israel and and yet at the same time here we're seeing that the wall of division between Gentile and Jew has been removed yet as you're going to see later tonight God's still got a plan for the nation of Israel and so what is this wall of division that's been removed if there's still Israel and God still has a plan and the church hasn't replaced Israel yet at the same time the church is now fulfilling God's plan for the world that the Jews didn't fulfill and all these questions hopefully we'll begin to wrestle with them and begin to answer them tonight but as we do that keep in mind it has always been God's plan that Jew and Gentile alike would, would be his he loves everyone now go to Galatians chapter 2 and look at verses 28 and 29 because of Jesus is reconciling us to God through his blood there is no division no hierarchy when it comes to knowing God, like we just talked about. But there's an interesting passage here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that has unfortunately been used by some to say that there are no more any roles. I don't have it. <laughs> what Bible? Galatians, did I? Galatians 3. 3. Galatians 3, thank you. Somebody, somebody, wrote a, somebody wrote a two in my notes. I don't know who did that. Last time I... No, it wasn't a built-in test. I, last time I leave my notes laying around on the table, somebody put a two there instead of a three. But Galatians chapter three, actually, look at verses 28 and 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek... 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, here Paul is, is, is illustrating the fact that because of this wall of division being removed, that everybody's equal in the eyes of God, that there's no favoritism when it comes to salvation. Some people have put it this way. The ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. In other words, some people don't have a a favoritism when it comes to God. He's not a respecter of persons. He has no favorites. But because Paul said this, there have been those over the years that have said, look, there's no, no longer any Jew or Greek. There's no longer any male or female. There's no longer any slave or free. We're all equal in God. And they have tried to use this passage to teach that there are no longer any roles. Men can do whatever men want to do. Women can do whatever women want to do. There's no more Jew and there's no more Greek. And Whenever you are going to wrestle with a passage of Scripture, whenever you're going to try to find out what the interpretation of it is, if you want the correct one, you've heard me teach on this before. What must you do to make sure you have the correct interpretation? Check context, and then you check your interpretation from context against what? The rest of Scripture. In the context here, we're not going to take the time to do it, you can just see that he's saying, look, you're all equal in the eyes of God. That's what he's saying. But now, is he saying against the whole of Scripture that that means there's no more any roles? No. no. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, Paul's dealing with questions about marriage and whether to be married or single and all these things that the church was wrestling with. And in verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, meaning a Jew? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, meaning a Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant or slave is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. And so here Paul, the same guy that wrote Galatians, is saying, look, were you a Jew when you got saved? Don't seek not to be a Jew anymore. Were you a Gentile when you were saved? Don't seek to be a Jew. Were you a slave when you were saved? If you get your freedom, great. But if you stay a slave, the issue of Galatians was simply saying that in the eyes of God, he doesn't save these people more than he saves these people. He loves everybody. He wants them, he wants them all to come to know him. We've been seeing that as we looked at it last week. We're not going to take the time, but if you want to go and take a look yourself and write these notes down, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. You'll see that the Bible is very, very clear that there are different roles for men and women. Correct? Now, we sometimes don't like that because two things. One, our flesh doesn't want to have anybody submit to anybody else. We don't like that whole word submission, period. Because we all want to be like God. We all want to call the shots. And actually, this has been a battle that's gone all the way back to the creation. The Bible actually says you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God made man first, and then he created woman as a helpmeet, and she had a role to fill. And what happened there when they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from? They were both there, if you look at the scriptures. The woman took the role of the man and took the lead. He took the role of the wife and submitted to her. And guess what happens? God comes and says, from, because you've done this, from now on, this is how, I'm going to paraphrase it for you, he said, you're going to have the battle of the sexes. Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Now we think, oh, I'm going to love, no, 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 that word desire is the exact same word that you find in Genesis 4, when Cain's about to kill Abel, and God comes to him and says, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to control you or to have mastery over you. Well, we know full well it wasn't like, ooh, I love you, desire. It was a wanting to control desire. Eve, because you've done this, here's one of the curses now that's going to come because of this. You're going to want to control your husband. No. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> and, and, and then what does he say to, to, to the man? 
and you will want to rule. You'll think you'll have to be caveman. The Bible says submit, woman. Because of that, we, because we're still in our flesh, we still have that struggle. And there are those who have taken Galatians and said, well, look, there's no more any Jewish Gentile. Well, I'm going to show you scripturally there still is. Even though they're all equal in the eyes of God, there is a still, he has a plan for the Gentiles and a plan for the Jews. Don't say that it's removed those issues anymore. And some say, well, there's no male or female. Well, that's not what the Holy Scripture teaches. He's got a role for each of us. So understand that the passage is teaching, when it talks about this wall of division being removed, it's not saying that there's no longer any roles. It's saying that the feeling that God loves some people more than others has been removed. That was never there. Who put that wall up? Man did. And through Christ, he came and preached to those who were far off and to those who were near to say, I never had that wall intended ever. You've totally misinterpreted my purposes and my plans. All right, you're about to say something or? This is probably a little controversial, but I think the spirit of Eve is very prevalent around the world today as we see so many women rising up to very highest echelons of leadership. Yep. It's the women that control the money in the world, you know? Well, I'll be honest with you. Or not, or not, but I agree that there control. is that attitude that is prevalent. I'm going to say whether or not it was God's design in the public civil world, this much we know that the scripture teaches that the women have value and equality in the eyes of God. They have a different role when it comes to the church. And I know what the scripture says about women's role in the church. You know, and unfortunately, being a pastor, you, you wrestle with that all the time because be those, my wife actually was in a conversation of a, of a little Bible study on Sunday afternoon, and they were actually looking over a passage they were going to be teaching in this group and wrestled with this one issue. And even after they had read the passage, this one lady says, well, I don't have the same doctrine you do. <laughs> and Becky's response was, we just read it. <laughs> but her attitude was, I'm not going to have anybody over me. Doesn't matter what the scripture says. So I, I say that just to simply say this wall of division. Don't let someone come and throw Galatians chapter 3, by the way, Galatians chapter 3, <laughs> verses 28 and 29. Don't let them come and throw that at you and say there's no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more slave or free. There's no more male or female. No, that's not what the passage is saying as you look at the whole of scripture. God still has a plan for the Jews. He still has a plan for the Gentiles. He still has a plan. There have roles. The wall of division is... Guys, don't let anybody think that God, don't let anybody even lie to you, or even Satan, tell you that God loves certain people more than you. God loves everyone equally. Now, I will say this. He doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. There are those who walk closer with him than others. Is it because God loves them more? No. They've sought him more. They have a heart for him. And you can be one of those intimates as well. You can be one of those intimates as well. All right, let's move on and take a look now at, well, like I just said, in the same way, God's not done with the Jews or the nation of Israel. Does anybody realize that in the very end, after the rapture of the church, at the beginning of the tribulation period, that last seven-year period left for the nation of Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Remember, there's still one seven left. Seventy-sevens were decreed for the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Sixty. Nine of them have already been fulfilled to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And then he put the nation of Israel on hold, if you will. We're in this time period of the age of grace. Jesus himself said, when he quoted from Isaiah 61, when he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has wanted me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, and to proclaim the acceptable year, or time period, if you will, of the Lord. We're in that time period, but it's going to come to an end. You'll see that later as we wrap up the whole study tonight. That time period is going to come to an end. And when that time comes to an end... He will finish that last seven-year, literal seven-year period with the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to use, according to the scriptures, 144,000 witnesses to go out into the whole world to preach the gospel at that time. Who are these witnesses? They're Jews. You can't get around it. You look at it. 12,000 from this tribe. 12,000 from this tribe. 12,000 from this tribe. There's 144,000 witnesses that are going out into the whole world, and he's going to be using the nation of Israel. <laughs> Remember, as we looked at last week, God has epics or time periods, dispensations, whatever term you want to use, and how he worked. He worked in the garden in a certain way. Between the fall and the law, he worked in another way. And then he gave us the law. And then from that point on, we have the church age. And 
he planned for the nation of Israel to be his light to the world. We saw the prophecies last week. They didn't do such a good job. Now he is using the church. By the way, not plan B. The prophecies already said that there would be a point where the Gentiles would be used by him. And we're going to see it tonight in another passage. He's going to use the Gentiles not only to be a light to the world, but also to make Israel jealous. Now, Jim, is that going to be the Jews from the time of the disciples? No. It won't be the Jews from the time of the disciples. It'll be Jews alive at that time. There's more people, especially with the technology advances for DNA and stuff like that, mm -hmm. the heritages and the tribes around the world that are coming back. Yes. The original tribes are Right, I know that, but, I, mm -hmm. but the Jewish people that I know, and I know quite a few. Right, right now. They think that they're going to heaven just by being a Jew. You're right. They're not interested in Jesus. You're right, right. and that's, that's the cool and amazing thing, and you're, you're exactly right. And if you go and take a look, you go and take a look at uh, Exodus um, chapter 37. And you see in Exodus chapter, not Exodus, sorry, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, you got the valley of the dry bones and the prophecy, and, and, and he's told to prophesy to the bones. And he's, God says, these bones are the house of Israel. And they were just, well, picture the Holocaust. You ever seen the pictures from the Holocaust and all the bones have just stacked up? And God says, prophesy to it, and he does. And as he does, all of a sudden, the, they just start coming, they start coming back together and the knee bone was connected to the shin bone and so on as the song goes. But what does God say? They were standing up, moving around, but they still had no breath in them. And then he says, prophesy to them. And then the breath of God comes in. Right now, we're in that period and it's becoming more and more evident that the nation of Israel has been rebuilt. For almost 2,000 years of the church age, the first almost 2,000 years, there was no Israel. And you can understand why a lot of Bible scholars would read these prophecies about the last days in the nation of Israel and the people of Zion and all this stuff. And they would say, well, there hasn't been any Israel since A.D. 70. It can't mean Israel. And that's why we got this replacement theology. They just it started good. And thank God for Luther. But Luther was one of the ones who kind of spread this, that God was done with Israel. Luther literally said, and you can find it if you do your research, that he thought that all the Jews should be hanged. That they should be hanged because they killed the Messiah. And they were rejecting his gospel as he tried to preach the gospel. Well, the Jews didn't kill him. You killed him. I killed him. We all killed him because it was because of our sin that he was killed. But because of that, because there was no Israel, when you read all these prophecies that talk about in the last days, God's going to restore the fortunes of Israel, they'd say there is no Israel to be restored. Actually, if you did any research, you'd find that there's been no nation on the history of the earth that has ever been removed from their land for over 200 to 300 years and ever come back. Never happens. Yet in 1948, boom, they became a nation. And they have been being rebuilt, but they don't have the breath. They just think I'm a Jew. And I'm going to be okay because I'm a Jew and I try to be a good person. But there's more Jews coming to Christ yes. at this time. It, exactly. And, it, it's, it, and, and there will be. And at the end of the church age, he will use, there will be 144,000 Jews that go out as witnesses. Well, go with me real quick to Zechariah chapter 8. I, I could talk to you about it. Let me just read to you from God's prophecy. Go to Zechariah chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 23. But the more you listen, the further along we get in this chapter, the more giddy you're going to get. Listen to what this says. And just use this as one of those further evidences that the whole of Scripture says, even though there's no wall of division between Jew and Gentile that has not removed God's plan and His purposes and His roles. Zechariah chapter 8, look at verses 1 and following. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Has that happened yet? No. Nope. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went in, out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people, this is the nation of Israel, to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise e evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Yeah. He's talking about the millennial kingdom here, folks. And at that time, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, there, and, and the whole world will know of his glory, he's going to use the nation of Israel as his light to the whole world. What they were given the responsibility to do at the beginning and they didn't do so good, Jesus fulfilled them himself and he's given the church the responsibility and we've done, eh, not so great as well, but you know what, it's still God, not us, that's, that's doing it. At the same time, there will come a time when God will, through that nation of Israel, preach the gospel to the whole world, and during the millennial kingdom, it'll all be headquartered and centered where? In Jerusalem, in the nation of Israel. Yes, ma'am. I have a friend who uh, writes questions and answers to biblical questions, and they wrote a whole treatise on at the end when it says, um, any, in other words, they believe that even though Jews don't accept Christ now, where it says all of Israel will be saved, that means all the dead, nope. by that point, yeah. they will bring them if they will. Unfortunately, and we're going to read that passage at yeah. the end of our study if we get there tonight. We, we are going to read that passage. It's not saying that every Jew that ever lived That's will be I saved. That's not what the yeah. passage is saying. And you'll see it in the context coming up. But all the Jews that are alive at the end of the tribulation, the ones who make it, because they're going to be, most of them are going to be killed. And Jesus himself, preaching to the Jews, talked about hell and how it was a place of eternal punishment. He wouldn't, he'd been lying if he would say it was a place of eternal punishment. Oh, and at the very end, I'll bring you out because you're Jewish. Remember, we've already seen there's equality when it comes to salvation. You got no favoritism because you're a Jew. But he has a plan. He has a plan. And those Jews at the very end of the tribulation, the very few that are left and are hiding for their lives out there in Boat, in, in Basra, in Edom, when Jesus comes and appears to them, the Bible says they'll look on him whom they've pierced and they will mourn and they'll realize you are the Messiah. And they will believe and he'll erase their sin and he'll defeat his enemies all the way to the Mount of Olives and he'll set up his millennial kingdom. But again, don't miss this. In the eyes of God, everyone's equal. But that doesn't remove roles and responsibility. So don't let people take a verse here or a verse there and not compare it to the whole of Scripture and teach doctrines that the church has now replaced Israel and Israel is done and God's done. It's so clear he's not done with Israel. At the same time, there are roles for men and there are roles for women. And our flesh may not like that. At the same time, if we were willing to do an actual study, you realize that actually the Bible doesn't say that women can't teach or preach. It just says they're not to allow to have authority. The issue is authority because God has designed authority. 
And half the time, with some of you women, and you would probably be right saying, but I would do a better job. You know what, you may. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't who would do a better job. The issue is how has God designed it? Are we willing to submit ourselves to His plan, His purposes, for His reasons, and trust Him? Well, and, and if, if the guy that's in authority is a, has a listening ear, he'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you talking to everybody or are you talking to Bill? Are you talking to everybody or Bill? All right, I'm just checking. I didn't know if that was a commentary or if she was talking like this. There could right. be one captain of the ship. Right? There you go. That's correct. <laughs> hey, go back to Ephesians, though, because I want to wrap up chapter 2 so we can get into chapter 3 tonight. Look at what he says next, though. I want to remind you what we ended up with last, last week. We're in the process, though, of him building his church. Is his church built? No. Look at it over and over again. Look at it, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the, in, in the Lord, and in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. And, and the ESV, I think, does a really good job of actually bringing out the true meaning of the Greek tense there. Uh, so the, uh, the, the RSV or the New American sometimes don't bring out that full meaning, and, and that's a great translation, so don't hear me wrong, but here they've brought out really well, you're being built. Now, we have to wrestle with something here, though, because he says that, that, uh, that it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But didn't, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul say that the foundation was Jesus? How come he says we're built on the foundation of the prophets and the, apo the apostles and the prophets, but in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter, verse 11, he says that Jesus is the foundation? <laughs> well, but the apostles were appointed to witness of Jesus. That's correct. So, cornerstone. When you're, you're bringing up a really good point. Here it's saying that he's the cornerstone. Remember, when you look at something that seems to be contradictory, what do we got to do first? Context. Look at context and then check against the whole of Scripture. In the context, we don't have time because of what we need to accomplish tonight. In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you will see, and you can go back and look at it later on. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. It shows us that Paul was dealing with people who were following men and not God. Remember, some say, well, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, or others say, I follow Christ. And, 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 and he says, these are just mere men that God used. There's no other foundation that can be laid except Jesus Christ. And so in that passage, he's dealing with the fact that people were trying to follow man. And he says, let me remind you, your salvation is based in Jesus Christ. Don't follow a man. We all have a tendency to do that, though, don't we? We have certain people we'd rather listen to than others. And, well, I, I follow so-and-so's teaching. Be careful. Because you know what? All of us, myself included, we could lead you astray. You need to know that your salvation and your faith is based in Jesus Christ. And you need to know what he's saying and how he's teaching you. My role is to show you what his word says, to teach and to point you in the direction of him. And hopefully you go home and read some more and study for yourself. And I hope you check everything I say against the scriptures. Don't follow a person. Don't follow a man. Years ago when I was in seminary, uh, uh, there was this young guy and he was brand new to the faith. And he was zealous and he was sitting in a class. And every time the professor said something... Um, he would always raise his hand and he would quote from Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon says, Spurgeon says, it got to the point that it was obvious that every time this guy raised his hand, he was going to tell us what Spurgeon had to say. So the professor stopped one day, walked right down to this young man's uh, desk, put his hands on his desk, looked him right in the eye, and he said, Charles Spurgeon smoked a big fat cigar. And the kid goes, he did not. And he said, Charles Spurgeon was hardly ever seen without a cigar. The kid goes, you're lying! And he starts to cry. The professor stands up and he looks around the rest of the room and he says, guys, help me out. Was I lying to him? And we all said, no, he was actually pretty well known for being a heavy, heavy smoker. The kid ran out of the room in tears. We had to go get him, bring him back in. And the professor sat him down and said this. He said, look, I didn't do that to be mean. But I had to help you out. If you follow a man, he's going to let you down. He's going to let you down. No one's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Don't follow a man. In the context, he was reminding them that Jesus is the foundation of our salvation, not somebody else. It's him. And he uses, as you go and look at 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 23, he uses people like Paul and Peter and Apollos as workers in his building, in his field.
Now, in here, though, he's saying that we're, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is okay, but Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here he's illustrating, if you know anything about construction back then, the first stone they laid in the foundation was the cornerstone because that one would set the direction of the rest of the walls. It had to be perfect. It had to be exactly 90 degrees because if you know anything about measurements, if it's even a few degrees off, by the end you get over here, you're not even going to be close to 90. It's kind of like watching how Jim hits a golf ball. <laughs> Because he hits it short, it's not that big of a deal. But if he hit it as far as I did, he'd be way off at the angle that he hits it. But at the same time, <laughs> but no, the corner, he said he's the cornerstone. But here, here's, he's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone and he used the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about the unity of the church and how he's used these people. But I want to wrestle with something. Some of your translations don't say cornerstone, do they? Did any of your translations say something besides cornerstone? Some translations say capstone. Capstone, which is the top one. And there are commentaries out there that will argue for the fact that this isn't saying cornerstone, it's actually saying the capstone, which is they think, or, or the keystone, as some people put it, which is the last stone that's usually put on the building which locks it all together. There are three reasons from this passage that I want to show you real quickly that I think the real word is cornerstone. Here's the first one. The only other place that this Greek word was used is in Isaiah uh, chapter, let me take a look, chapter 28. Go to chapter 28 of Isaiah. Say, Jim, Isaiah chapter, Isaiah wouldn't have been in Greek. Actually, it was in the Septuagint. Remember, it was the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The only other place this Greek word is used is in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament translation into the Greek, in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. As soon as I get there, I can read it to you. There we go. While you're getting there, you know, if you hit your ball like three miles, you might not be as straight as you think. <laughs> That's what I was just saying. <laughs> the further I hit it, the more crooked it is. Yep. Isaiah 28, look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Now, that word translated cornerstone is the same Greek word that's there in... Now, of course, it was originally Hebrew, but when the Greek translators translated the Old Testament, the Septuagint, into Greek so that the people of the world at that time could read the Old Testament. That's the exact same word. They use the same word. So that's one evidence. I think this should be cornerstone here in Ephesians. A second one is this. Um, there's a picture in the context of this thing being built up, correct? Mm -hmm. And so in the context, it's looking that this, he's not talking about the last stone. He's talking about one of the first stones, the first stone, the cornerstone that the church has been built up with Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as well, apart from there. And here's the last part. According to the context, is the church done being built? So he probably wouldn't say capstone because the capstone's only put on when it's done. It's not done yet. Is he the capstone? Does he hold all things together? Of course. But I think in this passage here, he's just simply saying that the foundation is Jesus as the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, they are a part of his building, which he already said. And so if you look at context and look, you realize 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2 are actually saying the same thing. All right. Now, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't know what you're talking about here. Go ahead. And what were its base of sun who laid its cornerstone? Right. So, first Peter chooses one in Psalms that says, I, I'm, I know what this means, but it, it mm -hmm. says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's right. So that's well, again, Jesus. that's talking so about Jesus again. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Now, go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Let me read verses 1 through 6. And we'll see how far we get with the time we have left. For this reason, remember what he's just been talking about, how the wall division has been removed. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now there's actually quite a bit here. And the first thing I want to pull out is, is Paul calls himself a prisoner for the Gentiles. Now, in order to understand why he says that, there's two things you got to keep in mind. Remember, this is a letter that was not written just to the Ephesian church. We've already dealt with that in the introduction, that, there, that this was a cyclical letter written to all the churches in that area of Asia Minor, and it was to be passed around. The reason why some of the old manuscripts we have say to the Ephesians is because when Paul wrote it, he put a fill in the blank, and each church could write their name in and then pass on the, uh, you know, a copy of and so on. Further evidence of the fact that this wasn't written just to the Ephesian church was if you do a study of Paul's life, you'll realize he spent three years in Ephesus. And here he said, I hear how some of you might have heard about what God's plan was for me to be a preacher to the Gentiles. He wouldn't have said, I think some of you might have heard, because he would have been there. But on top of that, at this point, and, and I, I agree with most of the scholars who have come to this conclusion, most likely when Paul wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. Now, if you go back and look at, at the end of Acts chapter 20 into chapter 21 and so on, you'll see that at a certain point near in Paul's life, he had a desire to go to Rome and, uh, and actually to Spain to preach the gospel. But he wanted to go to Jerusalem because he had been collecting this very large love offering from the Gentile churches for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And there was a group of people that had been set apart to go take this love offering that had been collected in all these churches to the, the Christians in Jerusalem. Because the Christians in Jerusalem were having it really, really rough. Keep in mind, if you were a Jewish person who became a follower of Jesus Christ, you were outcast. You were now no longer able to do business. You weren't allowed to be in the synagogue. You were just an outcast. And the Jewish Christians were having it really, really rough at that time. And Paul knew that there was this schism, even in the Christian church, between Jew and Gentile. You remember the Jewish Christians that went down from Jerusalem to Antioch to say, well, they're not circumcised, they're really not saved yet, and all the issues that arose from all that. Paul realized, man, if we could take a love offering from all the Gentile churches and bring this huge love gift back to the churches in Jerusalem, one, it'll meet a lot of needs. Two, it'll help them to realize these are your brothers in Christ. So he decides, I, this is such an important thing, I want to go with you. And he goes with this group. And when he gets to Jerusalem, all of a sudden word starts to spread that that guy, Paul, is here. And the Jews hated him because he was one of them, and now he's a Christian. And on top of that, he's actually saying the Gentiles are Christians, and that God is saving the Gentiles. And they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the part of the temple where Gentiles weren't allowed. And they come to attack him. While he's being attacked, the Romans, who were still in control at the time, quickly grab control of the situation. And they're about to take him to the barracks to protect him. And he says, can I speak to the crowd? And as he speaks to the crowd, they listen until he says something. Go with me to Acts 21 and look at verse 22. The end of his speech in Acts 21. I'm sorry, Acts 22, the end of his speech, Acts 20, 22, verse 21. Acts 22, verse 21. He's finishing his little talk there to that mob that was wanting to kill him. And in verse 21, and he said to me, Paul's quoting, he said that God said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him, verse 22. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. When he spoke to them, they all listened. And he was telling them his story about how he was a Jew like them and follower of God and faithful to the, the law. And then how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he talked about his struggles in preaching the gospel. And then God told me to go and preach this to the Gentiles. And when he said that, they said what? Do oh, you realize? Has anybody ever thought about the fact that the same thing happened to Jesus? He was in his hometown. If you go back and look later on, you'll see he was in his hometown in Nazareth. You'll see it in Luke chapter 4. He's in his hometown in Nazareth, and he goes in, and they honor him, and they ask him to teach. And he reads from that passage from Isaiah 61. And, and then they said to him, hey, do some of the stuff you, we've heard you did around there. And he said, 
said, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, were there Jewish widows during the time of the drought? Of course. But God actually took care of a Gentile woman. When he, were there others who had leprosy during that time? But God healed a, a Gentile named Naaman. And when Jesus pointed out that God loved the Gentiles in that synagogue, they grabbed him and tried to put him up on a hill and push him off to his death. And he walked away. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They weren't us. This division had grown and grown, even to the point that in the Christian church, Paul continued to have to wrestle with this. Even though they were Christians, they still didn't like those people. And Paul says, I'm in prison as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I, I, ultimately, Jesus is in control. But it's for the sake of you Gentiles. As I write this to you and you get this letter from me, please keep in mind the reason that I'm in prison is because of you, not your fault. It's because of my heart for you, my love for you, the fact that I want you to hear this good news. And because of that, well, look at verse 13. Go back to Ephesians 3. Look at verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul was a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Why? Because he loved the Lord Jesus and God had called him specifically to go preach to the Gentiles. And in doing so, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was lashed, he was, you name it, imprisoned. Folks, let me just tell you, if you do what it is that God asks you to do, not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to like it. I was meeting with a pastor today. And one of the things I, I had to explain to him, he's a pastor of a large church. And he's in that point now of wrestling with fulfilling the role that God has for him. Yet at the same time, he's got thousands of people who all expect him to be the kind of pastor they want him to be. He heard on the street, another pastor in the area told him, hey, you know what the word on the street is about you? The word on the street is, is that you're a great preacher. You love your wife and you love your children. And you love the church, but you're not there enough. And I told him, I said, keep it just the way it is. I hope they fire you because you spend too much time with your wife and your kids. Because here's the problem. If we try to please man, if we try to make everybody happy, are you going to do it? No. no. And are you supposed to? Folks, if Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, and he, but what did he say? I only do what I see my father doing. I'm only doing what my father wants me to do. And he was fulfilling, the Bible says, faithfully, perfectly. He did only what the father told him to do. Yet, everybody said, he's doing it wrong. Even his closest friends, Mary and Martha, said, Lord, the one you love is sick. I mean, here you are healing all these people. You've been in our house. You're closer with us. You owe it to us. When I was pastored in the Atlantic and I was trying to teach people that I'm not supposed to be everything to everybody, but I'm only supposed to be what God wants me to be. And I tried to teach them that I'm not supposed to be in everybody's house. And I had a couple of ladies come up afterwards and they said, Pastor, would you please forgive us? We're really sorry that we kind of expected you to be at every meeting and every hospital and all this stuff. And would you please forgive us? And I said, ladies, it's forgiven. Then they leaned in and they said, but you're going to come see us still, right? <laughs> Folks, let me just tell you, if you're going to try to follow God, there are going to be many who think, well, hey, I'll tell you how you ought to do it. Paul says, I'm doing exactly what Jesus told me to do, and I'm in prison, but it's because of what God's asked me to do. There's going to be resistance. Just be ready for that and don't. Take off the yoke that God has for you because of resistance. Do what he's asked you to do. Know that you're doing what he's told you to do. Trust him for the results. And don't worry about whether or not everybody likes it. Take it from just a preacher. It's a wonderful thing. And are there people that, uh oh, you wouldn't believe how many people have come to me and say, you should be in the pastorate again. When are you going to be pastoring again? When are you going to go back and be a pastor? And I said, when your voice sounds like God. <laughs> but until then, I'm going to keep doing what he's asked me to do. Now, 
we're not going to take the time to turn there, but you remember from our study of Galatians how Paul said in chapter 2, that uh, um, verses 7 and following, that he came to realize that he had been chosen by God to preach to the Gentiles. And you've heard me talk to you about this. The Holy Spirit determines the gifts that we have. 1 Corinthians 12 said it's the Holy Spirit has determined the gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 goes on and says it's the Lord Jesus, though, who determines where we're to use the gifts. Don't let the nominating committee tell you where you're supposed to be serving. Don't let the pastor tell you where you're supposed to be serving. You let the Lord Jesus tell you where you're supposed to be serving. Oh, and listen, don't do it because nobody else is doing it. That's not a good reason. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And many of you are not enjoying the easy yoke and the light burden because you're not wearing the yoke God has where you get the yoke that someone else gave you or no one else picked it up, so I guess I'll put it on. There's nothing better, there's nothing more freeing than saying, even if it doesn't get done, I'm not supposed to be the one who does it. Amen. And I believe that God, if He wants it done, will rise up who He wants to have it done according to how He wants it. And folks, take the yoke off that God didn't give you. Some of you have taken off God's yoke, though, because you didn't see any results. The rest of that passage, 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit determines the gifts. The Lord Jesus determines where we use the gifts and how we're to use them. And then the third part of that says the Father determines the results. Whether or not anybody listens, whether or not anybody does what you, hey, don't worry about that. Stop measuring results. Stop looking to see what the offering was last week in the bulletin. Do you realize how much we have been taught to measure results? Some of you grew up in the church and right about here and right about here were two wooden plaques, weren't they? And you know what was on them. How many in service last Sunday? How many in Sunday school and the offering? We don't have those anymore, but buddy, you take that out of the bulletin and you're going to have a war. Because we got to know. We got to know how we're doing. Listen, the reason you want to see what the offering is, is one of two things, and neither one are good. One is, you're giving according to whether or not it's up or down, and that's not good. You're supposed to give as God leads you to give, whether it's up or down. Or two, you don't trust the people in leadership, and you want to know how they're doing. You either trust the people that God's given the responsibility to do that. Folks, let me just tell you, stop measuring results and just do what God tells you to do. And Paul says... You know, I could easily say, well, maybe I'm not doing the right thing here because everything I've, time I've tried to preach to the Gentiles, this just hadn't worked out. That's not what he says. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, and don't you feel bad about what I'm suffering for you because this is the yoke God has for me, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Hey, don't try to be Paul either. You don't want to live a life that God doesn't have for you, especially a rough one like that. Now, he then also, go to Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 7 through 10. He hints here in the beginning of chapter 3 and says, I, I've, I've made mention briefly to you about this mystery. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, you can see where he makes mention of this mystery. He says, In him we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now here's where Paul had just meant, briefly mentioned this mystery. This word mystery, by the way, could also be translated secret. It's something that other people didn't know, but had now just been revealed. The mystery here isn't fully revealed. He just mentioned, briefly mentioned the mystery. But in verse 6, he clarifies what the mystery is. Now, before you go and read there, let me just kind of help you out. There have been those over the years who say, wait a minute, Jim. You've already told us that in the Old Testament, the prophecy said that the Gentiles would believe. And that God would wanted the Gentiles to know him. And that God loved the Gentiles. What's the mystery? Does anybody know what the mystery is? Keep going. Look at verse 6. The mystery, the part that's being revealed now is that the Gentiles would not only be saved, but they would be equal. Joint heirs. Look at it. Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 3. This is the mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you go back in your study of the Jewish temple, were the Gentiles allowed in the temple area? Yeah, they were. They were allowed in the outer court. 
There was a section where the Gentiles were allowed. There was the section for the men. There was a section for the women. There was a section for the Gentiles. They weren't allowed in the inner court, but they were allowed in the outer court. In the temple area, they were allowed. Because they said, well, okay, maybe God might save a Gentile. But they get to sit in the back. Paul says, let me tell you the mystery that's been revealed. Even the prophets didn't fully understand this. Because God hadn't chose to reveal it yet. But he's revealed it to his apostles and his prophets. And this is the mystery I want you to hear. The Gentiles are not only going to be saved, they're equal. They're co-heirs, joint heirs. Well, how does he take it? Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Folks, don't let this now make you think that God's done with the nation of Israel. Yet at the same time, the Bible does say, according to the scriptures here, that all the promises that God gave the nation of Israel, they are promises that we can take hold of. Because of Christ. Because the, all those promises were going to be fulfilled through the Messiah. And the Messiah has come. And now the church age has come. And it's been by grace. Not by whether or not you kept the law or you met the sacrifices or any of that kind of stuff or kept the holy days. It's simply by faith and grace, through his, receiving His grace. We're in a wonderful time period. And we, all those promises, they do apply to us. Are we going to be in the millennial kingdom? Yes, we will. We're going to be a part of it. We're going to rule and reign with him, just like the nation of Israel will. And we're, he's going to use us in the whole world. And it's going to be an amazing thing. But the mystery wasn't that the Gentiles would be saved. The mystery was that the Gentiles would be equal in the eyes of God, that there wouldn't be any schism. That's why Paul's been dealing with this wall of separation that had crept up that God never intended. Now, with that in mind, I want to now read to you Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 32. And I want you to follow along. We're going to wrap up this way. But I was talking with one pastor about two years ago. And uh, we were talking about God's plan for the nation of Israel in the last days and all this stuff. And uh, I said, it's, it couldn't be any more clear than it is in Romans chapter 11. And this is what he said. He said, you are the first person that I've ever heard say that Romans 11 was clear. <laughs> I'm like, have you read it? I said, he goes, yeah, but it just... And so I had to sit down with him and show him God's plan. And with all that we've looked at in the last two weeks, tell me that Romans 11 doesn't make a whole lot more sense now as we read it together. Romans chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 32. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? What's the answer? No, by no means. No, this is the nation of Israel. For I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace... But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. By the way, if you were to go do a study on that passage, you'll go all the way back to Deuteronomy. When God was beginning the nation of Israel and pulling them out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, He gave them their whole history. And He even says back there in Deuteronomy, you're going to reject me. You're going to walk away. And I'm going to use a people that, have no, that are not a people to make you jealous. It's been a plan all along. Now, verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full, full inclusion mean? Folks, I don't think we can even fathom what it's going to be like in that day when the nation of Israel believes in Jesus. Because right now, they, the whole world's focusing on them. And I don't know how they get there, but the whole world thinks that the reason why the things are messing the world is because of Israel being in that piece of property. And if Israel weren't there, everything would be fine. Uh, yeah. I don't know how they get there, but that's what they think. Now, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Those churches that think that we're the ones that God loves now because He's done with the Jews. Folks, the Bible says, don't you dare be arrogant. Don't you be arrogant toward those branches. If you are, remember that it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, the branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through, fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then that the, kind, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be, they will be grafted in. I love that. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. When? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I told you this, this church age is going to come to an end. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his, his inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor or who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Do you see it? There is no such thing as, as no more Jew and no more Gentile. There is difference in God's plan. Are the Jews more favored than the Gentiles? No. Are the Gentiles more favored than the Jews? No. That wall of division has been removed. And guys, there's a mystery that's being revealed in this church age that has never fully been understood until this time. And that is the Jews and the Gentiles are equal in the eyes of God and they're co-heirs. And it's going to be awesome when it's all fully revealed. What are we to do? I uh, was driving down the road today and saying, Lord, I'm just ready for this church age to be over. You know, you say it's going to come to an end. I'm, I'm good with it. And I had, a, I had a little tinge of guilt. Yeah. You ever had those tinges of guilt? Where I'll say like, well, you know, says the reason why he's delayed is that there's others. And why am I just wanting to go to heaven when there are others that aren't be saved? You know how that is? But you know what happened right after I had those thoughts? I was listening on the radio to John MacArthur, and he was preaching on God's plan and being ready for his return. And this is what John MacArthur said. He said, the Bible teaches us to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He said, you Christians, do you ever feel like you wish God would just hurry up and get here? He goes, that's the way you're supposed to. Pray that he would hurry up and get here. And in the meantime, keep doing everything he's told you to do until he comes. But there's nothing wrong with saying, man, I wish he would just come into church age today. And I thought, exactly. Who, who uses guilt? Who uses guilt? Exactly. I felt guilty that I was ready for the return of Christ to be today. And thank God he spoke to me through his word. Folks, be encouraged. This is an awesome thing. And we don't even fully know how it's all going to play out. But he's given us enough to follow him. And when we come back next week, we're going to really take a look at an amazing verse in chapter 3, verse 10, that says, God's intent is that now through the church, where he's working now, through the church, that His glory be revealed not to the world, but to the spiritual authority in the heavenly realms. We're going to really get into the fact that we are not on a stage where we're going to do our good deeds before men. Yeah, that's true. Jesus said that. But actually, I'm going to talk to you and take you through a study of how the Bible says that how we live in this world is actually you are on display to the angels and the demons right now. Yeah. We can hide from the world what we're looking at on TV or what we do in our private life and our computers. 
But the demons are watching. The angels are watching. We're going to get into that. Grandma's watching. I don't don't know about that, but let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this chance to come again and study your word. And I thank you for this fun uh, night to see lots of uh, new faces. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that that people are hungry and want to just hear what you have to say. Lord, we can't say we fully understand your plan. We know a little thing here and there that you revealed. But Lord, may we just trust you that it's good and your timing is perfect. And Lord... May we, at the same time, if your word is teaching us that we are co-heirs and partakers of the promise, and we've already seen in the beginning of the study that you have already blessed us in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, Lord, may we seek for what that is now. Yes, some may be revealed in, in in the life to come, but I don't believe that's what your passage is teaching, that it's all then. And so, Lord, as we dive more into this book, May we be encouraged in the same way that Paul was being used of you to write to those Gentiles who were all over that area of the globe. And as he was sitting from prison, and as we're about to see in the chapters to come, he will say, I want you to know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. I wish you could taste what I'm tasting right now as he sat in prison and wrote that. Lord, put within us that hunger for more of you. And may we rest in your plan, even in the times we don't understand it, but may we just trust you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you all.